Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and formerly an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, July 8th, 2022. Today, we'll be discussing the man accused of shooting Los Angeles rapper Nipsey Hussle, convicted on first-degree murder charges, plus the extradition of a suspect accused of murdering a pro cyclist and avoiding authorities for over 40 days. Also, the civil case leveled by a former UFC star against a man he claims molested a family member. And finally, the murder charges filed in the bizarre deaths of two young women left at separate hospitals by masked men. Today, we are excited to be joined by Charles Liu, attorney and founder of the Liu Firm, successful entrepreneur serving as LA City's small business commissioner, and legal analyst and educator on the board of directors at Loyola Law School, my alum. Welcome, Charles. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. Well, we're excited to hear your thoughts on these cases. A lot of interesting stuff to go over. But before we jump in, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got your start and what your practice is today. Sure. So very, very non-conventional background, uh, certainly not storied and, and uh, very different from yours. Um, again, very non-conventional. I uh, didn't practice law the first two years I graduated. I was a uh, executive protection bodyguard for high net worth and celebrity individuals. So glorified babysitting and uh, returned home after a couple years of glorified babysitting and realized that I didn't feel like going back on the road and uh, started doing security at local bars and nightclubs. So I was a, a lawyer playing bouncer, which was uh, <laughs> always made for an interesting conversation at the door. And uh, of course, one of those scenarios where you look back and you see how the dots all connected, because that was where it, certainly the, the provenance of my Rolodex um, the, the genesis of my Rolodex certainly was built at those nightclub and the doors and the VIP lists, et cetera. Uh, ended up getting a small piece of a bar through uh, a, a dispute with a landlord, uh, with one of my clients and uh, with actually the client that I ran security for. And that person generously gifted me 10% of the bar instead of paying me because we had no money. And that bar turned into a very, very famous bar in Hollywood, which launched uh, a, a, a somewhat successful hospitality uh, career, which has now blossomed into quite a few restaurants and bars and nightlife venues, uh, breweries, third wave, vegetarian, vegan markets, etc. cetera. Uh, somewhere around 2005, six, I started practicing uh, a little more, a little more conventional law. And it was in the area of entrepreneurship and startup businesses. And, and I was probably well su suited for that just because I'd always been an entrepreneur myself. So I, I felt like I certainly had an understanding of the, the obstacles and the, the trials that we would face as, as entrepreneurs and startup business uh, individuals and owners. Uh, and that has now over the past 15 years turned into a very interesting business or a very interesting law firm with a very broad representation, primarily of, of client interests rather than necessarily specific practices of law. So we represent a very broad array of clients and we will do whatever we can for those clients to represent them to the best of our ability and a breadth of representations or matters. Wow. You have touched all the bases. I love it. That is, that is certainly a circuitous route to becoming a lawyer and having your own law firm. 
Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, let's jump right into some of these cases, shall we? First, we're going to talk about Eric Holder convicted in uh, the killing of L.A. rapper Nipsey Hussle. This is out of Los Angeles, California. Holder was found guilty of first-degree murder in the shooting of Grammy-nominated rapper Nipsey Hussle. Hussle was gunned down in March of 2019 in front of his clothing store, The Marathon, following a conversation which Hussle allegedly, uh, or alleged, pardon me, that Holder had a reputation as a snitch. Holder was also convicted of two counts of attempted voluntary manslaughter and two counts of assault with a firearm for two others, uh, two other individuals who were injured in the shooting. Holder's defense argued that Holder had attacked Hustle in a fit of heated passion, uh, reacting to the conversation before having time to cool off. They alleged that the charges against Holder are excessive and there was no premeditated plan. So this is a a story, Charles, that really captured the attention of the country, but especially here in Los Angeles. I think the best way to say is this case is far more, uh, far less instead of a whodunit and far more of a what was it right? In other words, was this a heat of passion murder or premeditated? I, I know your 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 expertise is not in criminal law, but can you tell us a, a little bit from your law school days about uh, f- for listeners to understand the difference between the two that heat of passion and premeditated? Sure, sure. I, I will certainly do my best. Uh, <laughs> this this was a very interesting case actually for me because I had the honor of working with Nip's team uh, very closely, actually. Nip's day-to-day manager uh-huh. was a very, is a very, very close friend of mine, very extremely close friend and a business partner in the city of Los Angeles. So to really see this and, and witness this unfold and, and such a tragic loss, and to say yeah. you know, that an individual was, was inextricably intertwined with the, the, the real fabric of Los Angeles, like what truly makes Los Angeles great, uh, Nip really exemplified all of that. So this was um, this was a, a was a hard one, and I think this one that, again that, that struck it at the, the very heart of Los Angeles. Um, yeah. Not not just another yeah. celebrity, but really the 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 soul and the lifeblood of Los Angeles. So uh, again, unfortunately, I was I was quite close to the individuals that were really materially affected, and it was uh, I think this brought certainly brought some closure. And so much needed closure uh, to your question. So you've got, um, you know, you've got a situation here with a uh, first degree murder and the potential to uh, reduce it to a voluntary manslaughter. Uh, I think you had mentioned heat of passion, which would be the, this mitigating factor. And this mitigating factor would be based on, on, on essentially three principles. Was the individual truly angry? Were they, were they uh, furious enough to conduct such an act? Uh, the second analysis would be: Was it reasonable? Was it was it a reasonable anger? Was it not a subjective anger or a personal anger or something that would be unique to that individual? But would a reasonable person be infuriated to the degree that they would conduct some kind of heinous act? And then the third uh, factor, which you mentioned, was was there a cooling off period? Was there an adequate cooling right. off? And I think all three of those actually were very interesting for this particular case because uh, I think there was an analysis of, of all three, actually. I think there was an a- analysis of um, how angry was he? 
and how how angry did he appear to those around him and and how infuriated was he and then i think the reasonableness of that anger and then the cooling off period was was actually very interesting to me just from a a reading of the events as told by an individual that was with him uh where he returned to his car and i think conducted or, or engaged in, in eating french fries or, or started consuming some kind of uh, a french fry or fast food uh, and, and loading the the gun and then proceeded to walk back over and and uttered some statement I think it was you're through or something to that effect so certainly some some very interesting analytics as to those three factors no absolutely that was an excellent analysis of the of the breakdown of kind of the issues of this case um, something I always remember uh, you know from from law school but even when in the prosecutor's office that they an analogy that they use to understand kind of how quickly premeditation can occur. When we, when people without a, uh, a legal background discuss premeditation, they sometimes think that means this kind of elaborate scheming and thinking about it for days and planning. But premeditation could be something that's, that is developed very quickly. And they talk about the idea of when you're approaching a stoplight and that stoplight goes from green to yellow, you have a decision there to make. Are you going to pump the gas and go th blow through that, that intersection, or are you going to hit the brakes and stop because you know the red is coming? And in that instant, you are making a decision. You are deciding what you're going to do. And sometimes that's enough. Now you make an excellent point. In this case, it's not even that close because he went back, that cooling off period you talk about, he ate some fries, he armed himself, he came back. I think the jurors uh, really got it right here. Um, he was also charged a holder with uh, two counts of attempted first degree murder of two bystanders. And, and again, this is this idea of first degree, second degree. We'll try to get into some of that, but he was only convicted of two counts of attempted voluntary manslaughter. I had the opinion, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, that this was a little bit of overcharging by the prosecution because again, first degree has to show at least some intent that mens rea to actually commit the crime against that intended person. And how do you argue that you intended to kill these bystanders when really your target was this one person? Do you think the jurors got it right in uh, convicting him of only attempted voluntary manslaughter? Yeah, and I, I think I would probably tend to agree with your analysis on that. I, I think that that sounds like a very sound analysis. I just always wonder, and, and you obviously are far more of an expert in this manner, but at a certain point or at a certain degree, those actions are so reckless that do they do they rise to that level? You know, if you're if you're it's certainly um, under any circumstances, there's and, and I remember this from from doing security uh, work. And I remember actually one of the instructors uh, kind of interesting side note when I um, took a bodyguard, we took a fairly extensive bodyguard course because some of the. Uh, principles that we worked with were, again, very, very high profile or high net worth individuals. And they demanded that we engage in, in some real formal training, some real material formal training. And I remember one of the instructors um, said, uh, one of the first days of class said, what would everybody do if they came under fire? And these were all former military and former SWAT and former extended and extensive law enforcement background trainers. And of course, there was a, an array of answers from the, the crowd, uh, the, the, the trainees such as myself, and they ranged from, you know, assess the, the situation, assess the level of danger, try to 
uh, itemize or or target in on where the gunfire was coming from, uh, uh, protect the principal. And, and of course, again, this very broad array. And one of the instructors said, actually, uh, you're, you're all wrong. Everybody here is wrong. 90, 90% of you would do absolutely nothing. You would freeze and do nothing. And I always, I always remembered that. And I always thought that's such an interesting point because I'm sure that is what 90% of people would do because the majority, not the majority, but certainly a large percentage of us did not come from, again, extensive military or law enforcement backgrounds. So I always think about situations like that. And I think that you're talking about an individual, again, Mr. Holder, who, I, again, I don't, I'm not privy to any information as to his, his skill with a weapon or his particular skill with a sidearm. But, but I, can, I can certainly imagine that under duress and in the heat of a moment and with people screaming and noise and traffic and, and all of the other uh, ambient uh, uh, influences and noises that we just kind of take for granted and orchestrate and operate through, um, pointing a gun and firing is just reckless to such a degree that if there's anybody within a, a, a cone of, of area, you know, that it's very, very real and very realistic that they would be hurt or seriously injured or even killed. So I could certainly see where it would be trumped up, but I would tend to tend to agree with you, but I do like to think about the other, the other perspective. I, you, you nailed it on the head, Charles, that, that you, you called it that cone uh, in, in the, the prosecution world, we call it that zone of danger. And you, you make an excellent point. It, you, it's hard to argue that, hey, when I shot into that crowd of people, I was only intending to kill that one person. No, if you're shooting into a crowd of people, uh, then you have such reckless disregard for the safety and the life of all of those other people that it is easily argued that you had the intent to kill those other people too because of that reckless disregard. So you, your point is well taken. Um, obviously, the jurors saw it a little differently. Perhaps that could have been where people were positioned or you know, what they could prove as far as what the shooter knew about the position of other people. But it's an interesting argument and always an interesting theory when you see it coming up in cases. Jumping now to Austin, Texas, a woman wanted for murdering a pro cyclist who previously dated uh, her boyfriend was captured. We're talking about Caitlin Marie Armstrong, 34 years old, has been extradited to the United States to face murder charges in the death of Anna Mariah, also known as Mo Wilson, who was shot on May 11th, 2022. Wilson briefly dated Armstrong's boyfriend, Colin Strickland, who's 35 years old, who is also a professional cyclist. Armstrong's jealousy is the alleged motive for the killing. Wilson was found dead with multiple gunshot wounds at the home of a friend after spending time with Strickland the same day. Armstrong allegedly told Wilson to, quote, stay away from Strickland, one of Wilson's friends told police. Charles, it's always remarkable to, when, to me when you hear a story about, you know, seemingly normal people living normal lives that just crack like this. Uh, but really, the, the 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 headliner of this whole story was her escape. Uh, does it surprise you that Armstrong was able to flee authorities for over 40 days? What were your thoughts on that? 
you know, I always think about this and I always think about, you know, with the, the degree of surveillance now and the cameras yep. and and the, the ability for everybody to track everything and the cell phones and the towers and the pinging. I, I mean, certainly you could understand how you could go to extreme measures to take yourself, you know, quote, off the grid or, or you wouldn't use your cell phone. You wouldn't use your credit cards. You wouldn't use your car. Um, so I, I think in theory, um, I, I wasn't incredibly surprised that the person managed to to evade arrest for 43 days. I think what was interesting to me was, you know, you always hear these stories about these high profile individuals or, or again, high net worth individuals who seem to have this wealth of of resources and, and funds and they they attempt to disappear and they're they're very often apprehended. And you always think um, that. In theory, there would be this this large expenditure of resources to to bring that person to justice, but this was just you know by by all accounts a, a fairly normal group of individuals, you know, with a, a little uh, fame or notoriety, but certainly not household names, and certainly right. not from anything I read of of any enormous wealth or anything like that. And this individual was really tracked down. They were really tracked down. And if when you read some of the accounts of of how they were tracked down, and and I, I suppose she was a, a an avid yoga practitioner, and she had went to a yoga class, and then they had positioned cameras outside that yoga class, and and he had obviously done some really some really incredible work to to garner enough information to start piecing together uh, piecing together all the facts that would lead them to to start placing her somewhere. And then I think it's really interesting. I guess it it goes to this theory that we're all just creatures of habit. I mean, if I was going to go on the run, I suppose I would probably want to find a gym or I'd want to find somewhere <laughs> to stay physically active. So I think it it's interesting because it makes you think that we are we are like we are just inextricably intertwined to the grid. It's incredible. I, I was thinking about this much the same way that you were there. It's amazing to me in one respect that she made it, you know, 40 plus days without capture. And then it's also amazing to me that they were even able to capture her. You know what I'm saying? It's like both sides of it are amazing to me um, because of what you explained. First of all, she did this, you know, we've all played that game. Like, how would you, what would you do? How would you get to another country? She did about everything that you would expect. She wasn't using her own credit card. She wasn't using her own name. She somehow got this passport. We don't know if it was given to her or if it was stolen. Yet she uses the passport, assumes a different identity when she gets into an entirely different country, changes her look, like you pointed out, she changes her hair color and length. All of those are incredible steps. And all of those are kind of, you know, quote unquote, smart steps of what someone might do if they were trying to escape. But in spite of all of that, we live in this surveillance modern times where Apparently, the way this worked is that somehow authorities became aware of the alias that she was using. So now that that might have been just traditional kind of detective work. And they, you know, talked to enough people that they got a name. Then they checked flight logs. And then with the flight logs, they were able to determine what airport she might have showed up to. Then they checked the surveillance of that airport. And it's like they just continued to kind of chip away at this. And it you, you make that point. We live in this modern time where who knows how many times we're on camera per day. Yeah. And if all of that can be accessed, it, we might be living in a time where, where we'll never hear a story about a fugitive who hasn't been caught. It was just yeah. 
remarkable. I mean, my question was, had this happened 20 years ago, you think they would have caught her? Probably not. I mean, if I, if I really think about it, probably not because she, she would have, she would have undertaken certainly some, you know, some different, she, she would have been forced to undertake some different uh, methods and methodologies to, to hide her tracks just because uh, certain things that are available now weren't available 20 years ago. And more importantly, the law enforcement just wouldn't have the technology that we have. I, I often think about, you know, these, these stories that your cell phone's more powerful than uh, the computer that landed the, the first uh, lunar rover on right. the moon. And I always think right. about that. And I think that's, that's so, so unfathomable um, what, what you hold in your hand. And we take so for granted. But these things are, are this 20 years ago, this iPhone would have been nothing short of a supercomputer. So I think right. if you look at it like that, you think 20 years ago, um, you, you were just playing with a fraction of the resources and utilities that we have now. Yeah. Yeah. Just just fascinating stuff. And we'll continue to watch this story uh, because, you know, the part that we didn't touch on is this whole kind of love triangle and what causes a person to shoot another person over, you know, this what what most people would move on with their lives about. And now now we're looking at some one person dead, another person going to to prison for maybe the better part of their life. So we'll have to get into that on another episode. Turning now to Santa Clara, California, former UFC star uh, has been charged with attempted murder, has now sued the victim for molestation. We're talking about Cain Velasquez. I don't I don't know, Charles, how much you are into UFC. I'm, I'm not hugely into it, but I know enough about it that I know Cain Velasquez. He was a former um, UFC heavyweight champion, is charged with the attempted murder of a man he claims molested his four-year-old son. Velasquez, 39 years old, remains in police custody to this day after he allegedly shot at the man and rammed his truck into his vehicle during a high-speed pursuit through Santa Clara County in February. Velasquez's family claims that Harry Gularte was allowed to spend time alone with the minor and other children on the property, including in a bathroom and a playhouse for extended periods of time. The lawsuit accuses Galarte, 43 years old, and his family of negligence, sexual battery, and other claims. Galarte has pled not guilty to felony charges out of the same county of lewd acts with a minor. His preliminary hearing is scheduled for September 20th. Um, one, one thing I wanted to jump into about this is that Velasquez has been denied bail because he is seen as a threat to the, to the public. Okay. Now, is he really a threat to the public or is he a threat to this one man that he alleges molested his own son? And, and, and this kind of bothered me because they're not saying that we're going to set his bail high. They're saying we're going to deny your bail because you decided to take the law into your own your own hands, and therefore you put the public at, at at large in danger. Is the public at large really in danger from this man who's you know, as far as I know, committed no other crimes before in his life? What what was your your kind of take on this? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of thoughts about this. So I I actually had a a, a fairly extensive MMA background, uh, really pre MMA. It was before it was coined MMA. You know, it just was the the period before that, um, and, and so I was a avid avid uh, watcher consumer of of all of the MMA from. 
uh, Pride to TFA and, and even back to Batman contests, again, pre-UFC. So very, very familiar with Kane and uh, actually had an opportunity to meet him and lovely guy, lovely guy oh, wow. uh, and, and extremely humble, um, not a, 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 an ounce of hubris, um, just a, a very humble, a very lovely uh, and again, I, I certainly would not represent that I know him well. I met him on one occasion and I was in the vicinity, uh, in his vicinity on, on quite probably two or three other occasions, but never anything about him other than, uh, again, what I would say, which was a, 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 a very nice character, a very nice persona and a nice presence. Um, so I, I, I did read that. I, I was a little disturbed about this. I think you know, this, this matter is, is one of these, um, I, I'm not a father, so I know this was his four-year-old son, but I, the, the closest I could even correlate or, or uh, draw comparisons or parallels to would be, you know, my, my nephew or my godson, my nephew. And, um, and I can't even fathom what my response would be, but I'm sure it would be extremely uh, um, aggressive and, and, and probably very similar to, to what uh, Keynes was. So I, I, I think what you said, and I, and I would certainly agree, and I don't see him as a threat to society at large. And, and, and again, I, I actually did a little digging uh, to see if he had any priors, and I didn't see any priors. So I had no indication of anything to say that this person has exhibited uh, violent tendencies or the ability to hurt anybody outside of a ring, which is what he's trained and very, very well trained to do. So exactly. I had a problem with that. I, I actually had a, a, another problem. And the other problem was that um, the, uh, the perpetrator or the, the alleged victim in this particular situation uh, was released with zero bail. And that, to me, was a real problem because that is, is really unfathomable. This is someone who, who has the propensity or, or at least allegedly has a propensity to the degree that they were arrested. So certainly reason to believe that this individual uh, committed these crimes. And, and from my perspective, I think, how would you give that individual zero, zero bail and then give Kane no bail? And um, uh, Mark Garagos, I think, is, is representing, and he, he, made a, he made an interesting comment. He said, uh, that it was beyond the pale, his words that I read, it was beyond the pale that the father uh, was not consulted when they released this perpetrator back into uh, society, back into the public with a zero dollar, uh, zero dollar bill. And I thought that was a, an interesting comment to, to call it beyond the pale, uh, which, which uh, that completely side note, it's a, a very interesting uh, statement beyond the pale and, and, and uh, I'm actually familiar with that. I grew up in Scotland and it, it was a, a term that was used because the, the pails were the stakes that would go into the ground to build the palisades, uh, the wooden fences around dwellings and homes and villages. So beyond the pale meant that it was outside of the protective dwelling, this protective wall. And it was anything that occurred outside of that was beyond civilized control. So it was beyond the pale or outside. So I, I thought it was an interesting use of words by uh, Mr. Garagos. And I think I think it was actually a very appropriate use of words that, that it was to me, it was beyond the pale that this individual um, uh, charged with with really heinous, despicable and, and, and vile charges 
uh, over a hundred counts, I think they said, right? I think they said a hundred times or some some just yeah. awful thing that just makes, you know, the, the hair on your neck stand up and your skin crawl would be released with zero bail. So I, you know, I, I again, am, I'm very uh, compassionate and very empathetic towards uh, Kane in this particular situation because I think he did what, uh, what I think any father would do, uh, acting not to to uh, go back, but acting in in the heat of the moment or or upon realizing the the extent and again the the uh, the, the loathsome acts that had occurred, he he did what any caring individual would do and sought to take matters in his own hand and and uh, 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 get retribution. Um, uh, you know, this righteous indignation really was was the feeling I got. So, I I did not like that he uh, was denied bail. I thought it was inappropriate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that history lesson. I really enjoyed that. I did not know that. It was very very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for bringing up Mark Garagos, who's a, a friend of the show, a, for, a former guest, an incredible attorney. Um, yes, he's. Uh, I've heard him talk about this case uh, more than once. He is. He's definitely fired up about it for all the points that you highlight, um, and and it, it raises the the question of, you know, the the prosecution is supposed to be doing the work of the people, right, and protecting the people. And what kind of a message is being sent here when a person who abuses children in a heinous way, as you point out, multiple times? is released without bail and no notification is given to the families of the victims. And then you put those families of, in the victims of a position where they see this person on the street and you don't expect a reaction. And then when you do get a reaction, you punish that person further than the person who perpetrated that crime against their own family members to begin with. What kind of a message are we sending? I'll, I'll go one further. Not only is was that person uh, granted bail or released uh, on their own recognizance while Mr. Velasquez continues to remain in custody. But the Golarte is facing only eight years. And I say only when you look at that juxtaposed to Velasquez is facing 20 years to life for what is being alleged as his crime here. Again, what is the message being sent? And I'll, and I'll leave that for you to give kind of final thoughts on this case. Yeah, I look. I think it's a it's a disturbing message. I think it's again, it's a um, there there is some, and again, this is something you'd be infinitely well uh, versed or better versed than I would ever be in this. But I think it's a a clear example of of the need um, to to refine and redefine our criminal justice system, especially in certain areas. I mean, this is just this is one of these things that you look at and you just have this visceral reaction because you just know it's wrong. And and yeah. I might not have the the the, uh, the 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 criminal knowledge or the the jurisprudence or the understanding to to quantify or, or uh, verbalize or articulate exactly why it's wrong. But you don't need to be a learned lawyer to understand that this is just not right. This is this is should be generally accepted that this is not right because uh, you know Kane's. This is not this is not just Kane's son, which is again, unfathomable damage to a young boy. Um, but this is his entire family. And this is guilt that a mother and a father are going to have for, for placing that young child in the custody of someone who was able or, or enabled 
to do this again this type of act so this is not the damage to to one one young man who's going one young boy who's going to grow in a young man and is going to struggle with this uh undoubtedly for the rest of his life this is an entire family that is going to struggle with this for the rest of their life and a community because i i'm sure there's more victims and i have no doubt that more yeah. victims are going to come forward so again i think we 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 uh, we get things wrong you know we're, we're certainly fallible and the, and the justice system is certainly fallible and there's there's uh there's things that have kind of been indelibly etched into uh, the, the justice system and the practice of law that I think as we continue to move forward uh, as a country, they, they need to be re- refined and redefined and, and reexamined because this, this just didn't feel right. Yeah, no, you're at, you're, you're hundred percent right. That, that, that if the entire community is reacting to the way a prosecution is being handled, then maybe the prosecutors should use their, their discretion to rethink their priorities and how they're handling that case. Well, we'll, we will continue to watch this and I hope things uh, take a turn. Our final case is another case here out of Los Angeles, another kind of tragedy. It involves murder charges being filed and the deaths of two women who were dumped at LA hospitals. David Brian Pierce, 40 years old, has been charged with two counts of murder and two counts of selling or offering a controlled substance. This is following the deaths of Christy Giles, a 24-year-old model, and Hilda Marcella Carbrellas Arzalo, a 26-year-old architect. The pair were dumped at separate hospitals by masked men after the women went out for a night of partying. Giles died after being dropped off November 13th, while Arzola died of organ failure several days later. Both deaths were ruled homicide by way of overdose with multiple drugs in their system, according to the coroner, which included ketamine uh, and GHB, which are considered date rape drugs, along with fentanyl, which we know to be incredibly deadly, even in small doses. Pierce has also been charged with other allegations of sexual assault against seven other victims over a 13-year period. Brant Osborne, 42, was also charged with two counts of accessory after the fact in relation to the deaths. Uh, I'm going to give a full disclosure here. I happen to represent the husband of Christy Giles. His name is Jan Chilliers as a victim advocate on his behalf. Um, Okay. This case uh, has, again, another one of those cases, which it's locally here kind of taken over, but it has uh, garnered a lot of national attention just because of the, the tragedy of two women, two young women going out, just having a good time, happen upon a a, a real um, victimizing person, a real monster of a person who who takes them back. Not only do they end up dead, but then just the way that their bodies were dumped at these hospitals and the attempt to kind of evade capture. Now, to look at this from a legal perspective, Charles, though, the defense is likely going to argue that these deaths were accidental and that the women voluntarily took drugs that led to their overdose. And we know that overdoses happen all the time, but how does that sit with you? Do you think that will carry water with the jurors? I, well, I think this, this case is, is going to be very uh, reliant and, and quite, I, I believe, determined by the, the skill, the, um, 
respective skill of, of the attorneys. I think this is going to be one of those cases that um, will will develop and we'll see through discovery and the discovery process what what else comes to light. But I think the again, the respective skills of the individual attorneys are going to be very, very relevant in this. I think this is it. You know, I, I remember hearing about this case and and full disclosure, I actually know one of the individuals who uh, was finally not charged, and that was uh, Michael Ansbach, who I've actually known for for quite some time. Um, and and when I saw his name wrapped up into this, I was I was horribly, you know, disappointed and, and confused. Yeah. And uh, you know, I had individuals calling me saying, "Don't you know this individual? Do you know him?" You know, of course, social media is is, is so prevalent that people say, "Hey, this person's on your social media," or they're on this person's social media. Right. And of course, you know, it's it's you know, the 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 Hollywood community is it's not a massive community, so it's 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 very very small. Uh, you know, count on one hand the degrees of separation between everybody in, in the Hollywood community. So everybody knew of these individuals or knew someone who knew of these individuals. I think the thing that that it, it really brought back to light for me and, and made me really recall, uh, and this was something I used to see as a, a security and a bouncer at the nightclubs in Los Angeles, uh, actually the nightclubs nationwide, even internationally. Um, they, you know, these, these, and the parties and the events and the late nights, I, I often wondered when I would see people come into the, the club at the beginning of the night and come into the bar. And then I would see them leave at the end of the night. And I would see individuals leaving with individuals that they clearly didn't know. Um, I would right. see them leaving in, in various stages of inebriation and, and it's sometimes borderline comatose. And, and there were certainly, um, frequent, not, not, not infrequent, certainly more than one or two or five times where, where we would even take it upon ourselves to, to stop someone leaving with someone else because we knew they were being almost carried out of there. So we would, we would stop and say, who are you? Who is this person to you? How do you know them? Um, and, and, you know, of course, now you think about that 20 years later, and, and I don't know if legally you would even do that because legally you'd be torn between minding your own business for risk of you being sued, um, which right. again is a, is a much longer conversation again. But, um, but I, I, again, I, I looked at this and I thought it, it, it's so tragic and it, it, you know, it harkens back to this idea that you know, it's a, a, a very sad commentary on the world that two, two young ladies cannot go out and, and enjoy themselves and have a good time. And, and um, you know, it, it's just it's tra it's tragic and it's, a, it's a, again, a very, very sad commentary, but I'm not surprised. I, you know, I, again, I, I saw this happen frequently and I saw people leave and I remember on, on multiple occasions, just thinking to myself, these, these individuals could, could very, very easily just be victims. And there's, wow. as you mentioned, you know, you mentioned this individual, there are, um, you know, there's predators, there's, there's absolutely predatory individuals and they're, they're animalistic and they're, they're so and singularly focused and they're, they're, it's evil. I mean, it's, this yeah. is, there's no other word for for actions of of uh, uh, of this degree. Again, assuming that that this is um, what, assuming that what we read right now um, uh, maintains or, or uh, continues to be the 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 narrative that we see, there's just there's just a lot of it, and it's again it's insidious, and it's it's something that. Um, 
I, I'm surprised there's not more of, and I and I wonder. I actually often wonder about. I think this uh, this particular instance was a a bar or nightclub into a party, but you know this is you know where I think you you do, and we certainly have seen more um, charges and lawsuits regarding um, overserving uh, being yeah. leveled against bars and nightclubs. Uh, even to criminal, even from a criminal perspective, not just civilly. So I think there, there, there has to be more responsibility and there has to be more um, responsibility and accountability and, and good Samaritans and people looking at these situations and, and um, being willing to, to step, um, step out of their comfort zone and, and protect uh, to the extent that you can vulnerable individuals, because this is, this is not, Josh, this is not a, a random or, or a seldom occasion. This is happening right. every single weekend, every day in this city, every day. It's not just weekends. Yeah. It's happening seven days a week, and it's not happening to one or two or five people every day. It's happening to tens of people a day. Yeah, yeah. Now, to, to add to what you said, it's a tragedy um, because – you you would have hoped that somewhere along the line somebody would have stepped in, but you're right. Are people conf conflicted about, you know, do I get involved or don't I? Don't I? Is that any of my business or not? Um, but it, and again, if it, all these allegations prove to be true, the other part of this that really was disturbing to me was the idea that there are apparently seven other women and the DA's office has asked for others to come forward if they have been victimized by this person in the past who apparently had gone to law enforcement enforcement before and that nothing had been done and we're left with ending up with a murder before this person is is going to be held accountable and and that is so frustrating to me from you know I'm I'm a fan of law enforcement I'm not trying to be, to to be so critical here but what where was the breakdown in the system that this took seven or eight people before somebody finally died before we stopped this person from victim, victimizing others um, to bring this kind of bring it back uh, into kind of the legal discussion here, though, those other victims are going to testify uh, apparently in this trial and talk about their interactions uh, with this 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 defendant. Um, and what what kind of p power do you think that will have? What kind of influence do you think that will have on the jurors? Well, I think I think this is a, a probably a very good example of the, the the judge having to advise and 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 having to instruct the jurors um, as to as to the way as to the relevance to give this testimony because it could be extremely extremely prejudicial. So it's going to be one of these probative first prejudicial uh, weighing tests, I would imagine, because it could certainly be be very probative, but it would be very, very easy to imagine an individual like this uh, with the narrative that is um, uh, floating around or in the ether um, being villainized. I, I mean, I think we're, we're all ready to villainize individuals when situations like this arise. So I think, you know, the, the, the testimony of, of other individuals um, showing that this is a, a common course of action or this was a practice or this was something that had been perfected or, or ran through as in a, a, a operation or an action that had been undertaken multiple times, I think it could be extraordinarily damaging um, extraordinarily prejudicial but the the pro that the probative value to that would be undeniable but again that's where i believe that balancing test comes in yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just a tragedy. Um, we will, again, continue to watch this case very closely because of uh, kind of our, our closeness to it, uh, not only geographically, but the, the involvement that I have with uh, some of the parties involved. Charles, thank you again so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, you know, I um, charleslu.com. That's uh, my my primary website. Uh, I'm I'm very active on Twitter. It's at uh, Charles underscore Lou. Uh, I write for Forbes. I write for entrepreneurs. So I try to publish those. I'm uh, again been very very fortunate to get quite a, a, um, a disproportionate, but certainly more than I deserve uh, share of media attention as it relates to Web three and Metaverse. So I will continue to post that and um, yeah, just all the social media, LinkedIn, all all of the norm. And I, I try to be very good about responding because I I do always think you know it was the um, the individuals that responded to me when I was much younger and <clears throat> kind of embarking on this practice that that helped guide and inspire and and route me or, or provide me a, a, a GPS to to where I am today. So certainly try to be very responsive and uh, get back to people whenever whenever I can. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your question with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>